0: Hey, everyone. Great to see you again this week. The question before us, again, is mission, who cares? Last week, we gazed right into the heart of God, our God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, even for the hard-hearted Jonah, even for his enemies, the Ninevites. It would be a massive understatement to say that God cares for mission, that God has a heart for mission. So we prayed, confident in the heart of our God, that he would give us a heart for mission. Today, we move from the affections of the heart and its desires to the plans of our mind. And the plan is to line our plans with God's plans, our mind with God's mind. Now, I don't know what your plans are, I mean, I'm guessing some of you have everything all planned out. If you're in school, you know what job you'd like or what uni you want to go to. You know where you want to live, what sort of house you'd like to live in, if and when you expect to get married, how many babies you're going to have, exactly what they will all grow up to become. You know what school you want your kids to go to, what retirement village you want to live in. If that is you with a diary filled out with highlights to the day of your death, well, if God does answer our prayers and he gives you his heart for mission— Well, how will that affect your plans? Are you willing for God to change your plans? Because if we're not willing to go wherever God wants us, then we're not qualified to stay. Now, others of you, let's be honest, you don't have any plans. You're chill. You have no clue what the future holds. You're just keen to survive this year. Now, for some of you not having plans, it may be because you're short-sighted. You need to be challenged so you don't take your treasure and bury it in the sand, so you don't rob God of his glory with plans that are far too small or non-existent. But for others of us, plans are hard, not because we're lazy, but because the circumstances are so discouraging. It seems harder than ever to make plans when the world out there is such a mess nations ravaged by COVID, countries closed to the gospel, wars and rumors of war in Afghanistan, Israel and Palestine, Myanmar. There's political tensions, natural disasters, genocides, persecutions. The world out there is a mess. And then we look at the church throughout Australia. I mean, it's such a mixed bag. If we had time to read the first three chapters of the book of Revelation the letters that were written to seven of the very first churches, we'd see that heresy and apathy and immorality are all problems that the church has had since the very beginning. And even when the church is doing well, it still seems so small, so insignificant, so inadequate. I mean, what can our plans achieve? And then we look in at ourselves here at Wild Street, doing a little series about God's global mission. But before we finish this series, let's be honest. As soon as we close Facebook or Zoom, we get back to the busyness of life, it's all going right out the window. Any notes or resolutions you've made, you'll look at them again when you have time, also known as never. And then you add my sin into the picture, all the ways I fail every day. I mean, am I doing a good job of encouraging you right now? Maybe some of us find making plans for a mission all but impossible. In our discouragement, we wonder, what will God ever do with us? How will it all pan out? We love even a small glimpse of what's going on behind the scenes. We wish that God would give us a window up into heaven, a glimpse of his plans. And that is exactly what God has given us in the book of Revelation when the Apostle John was called right up into heaven. And in a moment, we're going to follow John right up into heaven to find encouragement for those who are discouraged, challenged for those of us who need a challenge, and for all of us, a glimpse of the very plans of God our Father and Jesus our friend. But before we do, let me just say a few quick words to prepare us for the book of Revelation. Revelation. Uh, To many people, I think Revelation is kind of like that uh, weird cousin in the family. You know, maybe you rarely read Revelation, at least not past the letters, because it's scary, it's weird and overwhelming. Maybe all three at once. Because, yeah, Revelation is weird sometimes, but even so, Revelation is actually the climax of prophecy. God wrote Revelation to encourage us. You know, one of the reasons why Revelation feels so weird is because our perspective is so different to God's perspective. We don't see the world the way God does. When the world sees Pharisees, it sees power and impressive. But when Jesus sees Pharisees, he says whitewashed tombs. When the world sees a widow putting two coins into a temple treasury, the world sees insignificance. But Jesus says she put in the most. Revelation is written in apocalyptic literature to unveil the reality of the world. It helps us to see that the governments of the world, with all of their impressive power and sex and wealth, they are actually great beasts, an idolatrous prostitute. Revelation that tells us that Christians who live short, painful lives and end up killed for Jesus... They aren't losers, no, they are conquerors who will reign forever and ever. One of the reasons Revelation is weird is because we struggle to see the world the way God does. Another reason Revelation feels weird is because we're strangers. God invites us, earthly creatures like us, on a tour of his heaven. And just as if the president of the United States or the queen, um, you know, uh, The president of the United States invited you to the White House or the queen invited you to Buckingham Palace. Just as if there'd be a whole lot of impressive stuff with history that you don't understand. In the same way, Revelation's picture of heaven is filled with impressive history from throughout the whole Bible. The less we know the Old Testament, the harder Revelation is going to be to understand. But that's okay because we all start somewhere and we're all invited to follow John right up into heaven. Now, I'm hoping to cover a lot of ground this afternoon, chapters four to seven, maybe even in an entire biblical theology of the nations. So we won't worry about every detail, but we will the a big picture of God's plan and two encouraging surprises. So keep your Bible, open, please, to Revelation 4, and let's head to heaven for our first surprise. Revelation four verse one. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I would heard, speaking to me like a trumpet, said, "Come up here, and we'll show what must take place after this." At once, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. Welcome to heaven, not the place you go when you die but the control center of the universe. It's overwhelming, right? A feast for the eyes, an assault on the ears. See, Right at the center of everything is the throne and the one seated upon the throne. John struggles to describe him, grasping at precious stones, jasper, carnelian, emerald. You're just trying to imagine that when John sees 24 elders clothed in white. And then the sound hits you, rumblings and thunder. There are torches, four living creatures with eyes on them. It's overwhelming. It's impressive. We hear echoes of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And just as your eyes are trying to take it all in, the four living creatures begin to sing of how holy God is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the four sing that song, which is apparently night and day without ceasing, the 24 elders break into their song. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. By your will, they existed and were created. You know, the details may be difficult, but what's very clear is that God is awesome, seated on the throne at the center of everything, worshiped as holy by every sort of creature, worthy to receive glory because he's the creator who made everything. He made everything. He made you. And so he is worthy of your everything. But as we try to take everything in, I think we're left wondering whether this impressive God of chapter four, seated in his glorious heaven, whether he has anything to do with us. I mean, he's so otherworldly that we wonder how could our world matter to him at all? And that's when we turn to chapter five and we see the scroll Because there in the right hand of the one seated upon the throne is the scroll that symbolizes God's plans for human history. This scroll is the proof that God does care, that he does have a plan for our messy world. But there's a problem. Verse 3. No one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Nobody no one, not one creature in heaven or on earth or under the earth, no one is found worthy to open the scroll of human history. Not the mighty angel, not John, not you, not me. God has a plan, but there's no one to put it into action. So John begins to weep with deep discouragement. Will no one step forward to action the plans of God in an unworthy world where mission seems Impossible. Well, now we come to the first of two encouraging surprises. And the surprise is in the difference between what we hear and what we are given to see. Because as John weeps, he hears a voice. Verse five, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. For thousands of years, God's promises lay unfulfilled. All the way back in Genesis, God promised that there would come a king from the lion-like tribe of Judah. Hundreds of years would pass until God began to keep that promise with David. The king whose kingdom grew to be like a great tree. David's children ruled on the throne for generations. But sadly, it didn't take long for them to prove unworthy, and the kingdom was torn away. The tree of David was cut down, first by Assyria, then Babylon but God made promises through prophets like Isaiah. He promised that one day there would come out of that broken stump of David, a root which would grow to rule forever and ever with the glory of God. He would be the Messiah, the Christ. He would bring justice to all nations. And now we hear that, it, we hear that he's come. He's marching into the throne room of heaven to take the scroll And so we turn with John with great expectation. We expect to see a lion king. We expect to see a warrior like Rambo or Cooper with great expectation of thousands of years of prophecy ringing in our ears. We turn with John and what we see is surprising no matter how many times we've seen it. Verse six, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. John heard lion. He looked and he saw a lamb, a lamb standing as though it had been slain. One of my friends is a missionary in Buddhist Asia and he has the privilege of reading uh, the Bible with a Buddhist monk as they read about Jesus' teachings, his wise teachings and his powerful miracles, the monk said, this is the same as Buddhism. But then they began to read about Jesus washing his disciples' feet, then laying aside his great power and wisdom to be nailed to a cross. And the monk said to my friend, this is different to Buddhism. Buddhism cannot comprehend it. Islam denies the death of Jesus. Hindus worship many gods. Our secular societies make plans that avoid pain and pursue pleasure whatever the cost. But at the center of the universe is the lion, the lamb who was slain. The lion the conqueror who will rule forever and ever, who alone is worthy to take the scroll of human history and action the plans of God. The lion is a lamb. For there was another strand of God's ancient promises. From the very beginning in the garden, the skins of innocent animals were given to cover the shame of guilty humans. The Israelites, who were delivered up out of slavery in Egypt, they were spared because the blood of a Passover lamb was shed to cover them. The bloody sacrificial system went on and on, year without end. But Isaiah promised that one day there would come a suffering servant who would be led like a lamb to the slaughter. But nobody expected that the lamb would be the lion. The surprise is that these two strands of prophecy are woven together. The lamb is the lion. The lion is a lamb. Jesus, the lion of Judah, conquered not through violence, but by his sacrifice. At the very moment when the lamb seemed the weakest, dying innocent and undeserving as a victim of violent men, in his very defeat, the Lord Jesus won. There is no other God with scars like these, whose blood poured out to cover the unworthy, whose obedience, even to the point of death, secure his eternal glory forever and ever, who is worthy to open that scroll. But before he does, all of creation bursts into song. And to find out why, look with me at the lyrics of this new song in verse 9. Because they don't just tell us why the Lamb is worthy. They give us a hint of God's game plan. The first step in mission accomplished. Verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. I wonder what your first answer is when someone asks you what Jesus' death accomplished. What did Jesus' death accomplish? I reckon a lot of the time our answers are pretty individualistic. You know, Jesus died for my sins and maybe yours. And that's true but there's a whole lot more to it than that. What did Jesus' death accomplish? This song tells us that when Jesus died, his blood ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. I wonder if you know where that phrase comes from. It's an important phrase in the book of Revelation. It appears seven times, a very important symbolic number, but it doesn't come from Revelation. I wonder if anyone knows where it comes from. I wish we could do a Q&A here. I know we can't. Um, I'll just have to tell you. The story of every tribe and language and people and nation, it begins all the way back in the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. Now strap yourselves in. It's time for a brief biblical theology of the nations, a few minutes of Seth freaking out about God's glorious plan from the very beginning to bring all nations into salvation so where's the first hint of nations in the bible where's the first time you see references or even ideas for the nations well in the very beginning chapter one god created humanity one humanity in his image and he blessed them with a command to be fruitful and multiply and scatter out into the world to fill the earth and subdue it And although Adam and Eve were placed at the center of the world, Genesis 2 tells us that the river which flowed out of Eden and into the garden split there into four great rivers that traveled out to every corner of the earth. The story of Genesis 2 sends us winding across a world full of treasures, different treasures in different places. You know, we often think that the root of our problems are the differences which divide us. But the one God who gave many gifts always intended humans to multiply out into different families, to spread out into different places with different treasures. And in the new creation after the flood, that's what we see happening. It's one of the most overlooked chapters in the Bible, Genesis 10, the table of nations. We find there Noah's sons seemingly obeying God's blessed command. They fill the earth as they're fruitful and multiply into a symbolic list of 70 different nations. That's the symbolically perfect number, 7 times 10. And there in chapter 10 of Genesis is the line repeated three times. Verses 5, 20, and 31, we are told that these peoples spread out and were diversified... By their families, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Here is the fourfold phrase, which Revelation is going to pick up and use seven times. Here is the biblical, I guess, definition of a nation. Different families or ethnic groups living in different lands, speaking different languages. I think Genesis 10 seems to suggest that the nations of the world, in all of their differences, were good. They were intended in some way part of God's blessed plan for humanity to multiply and fill the earth. I think that's why the author of Genesis places Genesis 10 before Genesis 11, even though Genesis 11 comes first chronologically. Genesis 11 being the Tower of Babel. Because the problem with the nations was never their differences. In the beginning, the problem was not sinful division, but sinful unity. In Genesis 11, the proud builders of Babel, they resist God's blessed command to multiply and fill the earth. Instead, they clump together. They seek to make their own name great. Humanity unites in rebellion against God. So God comes down to judge. They wanted to make their united name great. But God scatters the shards of Adam and dooms the plans of humanity to failure. The plans of man were frustrated, but God, he had a plan. Because his heart beats not only for justice, but mercy. And in what the New Testament in Galatians calls the gospel preached beforehand, God promises one man, a little man called Abraham, that God would take him and make him into a great nation and so bless all the nations of the world. That symbolic list in Genesis 10 of every tribe and language and land and nation, that's the critical context for the promises God makes to Abraham. Here at the very beginning of our sacred scriptures, the sacred scriptures of Israel, is the reminder that God has always planned for all nations to experience his blessing. And those promises to Abraham, they propel us out, out throughout the whole Bible. I mean, you name any purple passage, any passage of the Old Testament, and you will see God's glorious plan to save some from all nations. Israel at Sinai, commissioned as a light for the nations. Psalm 22, where the David David's son, he calls out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 21 verses tell us of his suffering. But then, suddenly, there's a resurrection, and it bursts forth in life for all nations. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Or in Daniel, the book of Daniel, when Daniel sees a vision of the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven to receive dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Isaiah 2 has all the nations streaming up to the mountain of the Lord. Then Isaiah 22 promises God will swallow up on Mount Zion the covering of death cast over all peoples. How's that going to happen? Isaiah 53 promises that the blood of that suffering servant will sprinkle many nations and shut the mouths of many kings. So in Romans 15, you'll find those verses from Isaiah are the basis of Paul's plans, his ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, but to the unreached and the unengaged all the way in gospel zero Spain. Jesus crosses to the Gentile side of the sea. There's the Great Commission, Pentecost, our sermon series in Ephesians just earlier this year. God's plan to unite all things in Christ, whether things in heaven or on earth. And on earth, in chapter 2, it's the Gentiles who were once aliens of the commonwealth of Israel being brought in. Now, if you don't know what a Gentile is, that's a really weird word, right? Like, what is a Gentile? Well, the word Gentile always translates the same word as the word for nations. When you read Gentile, you should think nations. You shouldn't just think not a Jew. You shouldn't just think black and white. Maybe you should think chalk and cheese. Because there's lots of different types of cheese, right? Yarl and Mercy Valley and Camembert and Brie. There are tons of different types of cheese And whenever you read Gentile, you should have this big picture of all these different nations echoing in your mind. All the beautiful differences in humanity. Because this is what Jesus accomplished. Revelation teaches us that there is not one tribe, not one language, not one people, not one nation for whom the Lamb did not die. When Jesus died, he died not just for Jews. But for Palestinians, not just for Han Chinese, but for Uyghurs, not just for white Australians, but for indigenous Australians. Christians must never be racist. This isn't just you and me hanging out with Jesus in heaven. This is people from every tribe and language and land and nation bought by the blood of Jesus to be a kingdom and priest to rule on the earth forever and ever. No nation will be left behind and because the lamb is worthy all creation bursts into song don't you want to join them well before we do before we bring this all back down to earth and reflect on what it means for us we want to see the lamb open those seven seals we want to see mission accomplished and our second surprise Now, we don't have time to read it now, and I hope you read it later, but Revelation 6 is where the Lamb begins to open the seals. And first we meet the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The first four seals pop off and we meet conquest, war, famine, death. These are the very things that make mission seem impossible. And when the fifth seal pops off, we see God's people, the very best of God's people who've endured suffering even to the point of death to witness to Jesus. The martyrs, they cry out, how long? How long, O Lord, until justice is brought to the earth? The answer is the answer every child on a road trip hates to hear, just a little longer. And then the sixth seal pops off. And we get a glimpse of final judgment. The sky vanishes like a scroll. Every mountain and island removed from its place. And from everyone, from all nations, slave and free, the kings and the great ones of the earth, and the generals and the rich and the powerful, everyone together faces God's judgment. And everyone cries out together, who can stand, who can survive the judgment? It's a good question, and our second surprise gives us the answer before the seventh seal pops off to wind up the world. Read with me from chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Not even the wind is allowed to touch the earth until God's people are sealed on forehead with the opposite of the mark of the beast with a spiritual symbol of protection. And then John hears the number of the sealed verse four. And I heard the number of the sealed 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben 12,000 from every tribe are sealed, making 144,000. It's a symbolic number of all God's promises to his people from the 12 tribes coming true. John hears that all of Israel will be saved. And then the surprise comes again in the difference between what he hears and what he sees. And what he sees is mission accomplished. Look at verse 9. And the sealed 144,000, the perfect and complete Israel, is the innumerable people from all nations, tribes, peoples, languages, who are saved by God and the Lamb forever and ever. Every promise to Israel will be kept in the uncountable people of God from every nation. As we come back down to earth, we leave encouraged by the glimpse of the final score, of mission accomplished, of a future as bright as the promises of God. This vision has inspired countless missionaries. It was this vision which inspired William Carey, the father of the modern mission movement, to say, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. When the missionary martyr Walter Gowans was told in 1893 that Africa was a closed door to the gospel, this vision inspired him to say, the only reason the door is closed is because the Church of Jesus Christ has not reached out its hand to push it open. This vision took Hudson Taylor, the founder of OMF, from his home in England all the way to China, this vision took Roland Bingham, the founder of the SIM, from Canada to the Sudan. This vision took the Cambridge Seven from England to China. This vision took Howard and Trish from the house that I'm currently living in all the way to Belgium, Josh and Nikki away from us, heading towards Indonesia, the Lowe's to Singapore, the Nichols to Malaysia, the Lister's to Wagga, Candace, the Kongs to Melbourne, To Wanda and Shupi to Zimbabwe. For those of you who need a challenge, here it is. What are your plans? Are God's plans your plans? Are you willing for God to change your plans? If we're not willing to go wherever God wants us, we're not qualified to stay. Brothers and sisters, let us not rob God of his glory with too small a vision. Are we seeking our kingdoms first? Or are we seeking his kingdom first, leveraging all that we have, our time, our money, our energy, all for God's glorious mission to save some from all nations? Let me encourage you, before this series finishes, before these three weeks are up, seriously reflect on your plans for life, and how they line up with God's plans to bring life to all nations. For those of us who need encouragement, Revelation has given us a picture of a future as bright as the promises of God. Revelation reminds us that reality isn't always the way we see it. We need to take heart for the conquering lion, is a lamb. We need to take heart, for at the center of the universe is not a rising China or a powerful America who can give us nuclear subs. No, a lamb has conquered, and he sits upon the throne of the creator. Last week, the application was to pray for ourselves, that God might give us his heart for mission. Now, alongside the challenge to get to know God's plans better and to compare your plans with God's plans, I want to encourage us all to pray, to pray for the nations. You know, Revelation has given us a picture of heaven, and Jesus encourages us to pray daily for God's kingdom to come on earth, just as it is in heaven. Too often we see prayer as weak Wasted time on our knees. But Jesus has to pray for workers to be sent into the harvest. Paul says to pray for a door to be opened for the word. Jesus says that God loves to give good gifts to his children. When my grandfather first went to Ethiopia as a pioneering missionary a really long time ago, he stood atop this mountain and he looked down to see in the valley beneath uh, the smoke rising from all of these different villages, all these different tribes where the gospel had never been preached, where there were not yet any Christians. And when he came back to Australia on his first home assignment, he wrote on a bookmark the name of every single one of the different tribes in that valley. And he gave it out uh, in the churches he went to to anyone who promised to pray. And in one church, he tells me, there were these two young girls who took a bookmark and they promised to pray. Many, many years later, my grandfather would visit that church again and he would meet those two girls who'd grown up to be women and they pulled out a little tattered piece of paper, the bookmark that they had used to pray. And my grandfather had the privilege of telling them That every single one of those tribes had been reached. Now there were Christians in each and every one of those little villages from which smoke was rising. And if you ask my grandfather why those tribes were reached, he will tell you that it is because two girls got down on their knees every night to pray. Brothers and sisters, Let us not rob God of his glory with plans that are too small. Instead, let us seek his kingdom first. Let us take heart, for God has given us a glimpse into heaven itself. The lion is the lamb. The 144,000 is the multitude that cannot be counted from every nation and tribe and people and language. Our God is worthy, and his mission plans are more than possible. They are certain.